On this episode, I'm in the room with Sam Storms wrestling with the question, can a Christian lose their salvation? Welcome to In the Room, episode number 26. I'm Ryan Hughley, and I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me online at ryanhughley.com and also on Twitter and Instagram at, at @ryanhughley. that's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. If you're new to the podcast, my goal is to bring you in the room for conversations with interesting people. I talk with pastors, professors, authors, and artists about their stories, their crafts, and how they do what they do. This week, I'm in the room with Sam Storms. He serves as the lead pastor for Preaching and Vision at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He serves on the board of directors for both Desiring God and Bethlehem College and Seminary, and he's authored dozens of books, one of the most recent being Kept for Jesus, What the New Testament Really Teaches About Assurance of Salvation and Eternal Security. In our conversation, we discuss common factors in ministry burnout, why he doesn't have a devotional life like you might expect, and whether or not Christians can lose their salvation. It was an honor to spend time with him, so come on in the room for my conversation with Sam Storms. Well, Dr. Storms, thanks so much for being uh, on in the room. I really appreciate it. Excited about your uh, new book, Kept for Jesus, and to talk about that. But I was wondering if we could start by uh, hearing a little bit more about your background. So I know you're in Oklahoma now. Is Oklahoma where you're originally from? It is. I was born and raised here. I lived the first 10 years of my life here. I lived in uh, Midland, Texas for a few years, moved back to Oklahoma. Um, My wife and I both went to University of Oklahoma. Uh, That's where we met, Uh, graduated there in 73, so I ought to tell you about how old I am. Excellent. And uh, went to Dallas Theological Seminary. We lived in Dallas for 12 years uh, and then moved back to Oklahoma for a while, pastored a church in Ardmore, Oklahoma, for about eight years, then went to Kansas City for seven years, or yeah, to Kansas City for seven years, uh, then to Wheaton College and uh, taught Bible and theology and historical theology at Wheaton for four years. Uh, moved back to Kansas City for four years. And then in 2008, we came to Oklahoma City and we're done with moving. It's over. I've, okay. I'm tired of carrying books up and down I-35. Uh, <laughs> I'm too old for that anymore. So we've been here since 2008 at Bridgeway Church and we love it. Okay. So are you? did you grow up in a Christian home then? Yes, I did. Did you come yeah, to faith of, at a young age, or was that later on in life? At a very young age. Um, it's hard for me to even pinpoint when I didn't know Christ. Uh, my parents were both godly people, and my sister was a Christian. Uh, so we, I was raised Southern Baptist and uh, made a public profession when I was nine. Okay. Um, but pretty much have, have, have felt like I've known Jesus um, for as long as I can remember. So did you feel a call to ministry at a, at a young age as well? Were you pretty certain about that right away? Yes. I had a very vivid, distinctive, unmistakable, um, I think, calling from, from the Lord when I was 10 years old and have never wavered from that. I, I didn't know that it was going to be in pastoral ministry, okay. but I knew it was going to be in some form of full-time ministry. Well, I think uh, before we talk about 
your latest book, Kept for Jesus, I think it'd be a huge fail on my part not to talk to you about ministry, specifically ministry longevity. I did the math, and and you've been in ministry over forty years, and yes. uh, and that's a really big deal. I mean, a lot of a lot of people don't make it four years, and so I was just wondering. I know that it's kind of a, a lot to reflect on, but when you look back, what do you think are some of the most significant factors that have kept you both faithful and fruitful for so long in ministry? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, I think um, I, I would point to three things. Okay. Number one, um, I was uh, nurtured and raised from very early on by um, men who kept me, who uh, kept me in the text of Scripture. They forced me to deal with the Word of God. In other okay. words, it was my, my training, my education, my early ministry— uh, has always been grounded in the text. And I think that continual inflow, as it were, of the biblical text has been the means by which God has sustained me. Um, I, I have embraced the inerrancy and the, what I call the functional authority of Scripture from day one and have never wavered. And I think that has been the means or the instrument by which God has um uh, preserve me. I think the second factor would be uh, I was blessed to be mentored and befriended and led uh, by some really, really godly people, some godly men primarily. Um, uh, my father, um, a man by the name of S. Lewis Johnson, who was a professor at Dallas Seminary with whom I served at Believer's Chapel on staff as his associate pastor. Um, a man by the name of Russ McKnight, who was a layman here in Oklahoma City, uh, long friendships with some very, very dear friends, all of whom have, I think, have just been a constant example, a constant exhortation uh, to me. And then I think, thirdly, I, I have to attribute a lot of it to my wife. Uh, yeah. We will have been married, let's say, 43 years in about a month or two months from now. And uh, just her love, her commitment, her presence— uh, the way she has supported me and prayed for me and loved me through it all. Um, so I'm sure there would be other factors as well, but I think, I, I think just the, just the, the way in which God has used the word of God to, to, um, fill my mind, to captivate my passion, to ignite joy in Christ in me. And then those, uh, godly examples and mentors in the faith. And then my wife. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I, you got to think over the last 40 years, unfortunately, you have seen a, f a fair share of pastors either burn out and leave the ministry or flame out because of moral failure mm -hmm. or something that led to them having to resign. What are some of the most common factors you've seen that have taken pastors out of ministry? Yeah, that's a real tragedy. In fact, a um, friend and I were thinking about the number of men that we graduated seminary with and probably well less than 50% are still in ministry. And wow. many that we have heard about have, um, um, have either walked away from the faith or in more cases, as you mentioned, uh, walked away from their wives and their commitment, uh, to fidelity in marriage. Um, well, there's just, there, there's numerous reasons there. Uh, obviously one is, um, although it may sound trite and simplistic, um, I think that they lost sight of the truth of Psalm 1611, that in God's presence is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures evermore. 
and they bought into the lie uh, for whatever reason that um, there was something uh, that the world, the flesh, and the devil could provide them that Christ couldn't. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, there are a lot of things that fuel that. There is uh, a lack of accountability. Uh, I, I am a strong, strong believer in uh, accountability with other men with whom you can share your life. And the fact of the matter is, if somebody wants to not be accountable, they can pull it off. They can lie. You can sit in a small group and you can lie. Yeah. And there's nothing ultimately, I suppose, that can prevent that. But to have men who are asking you the hard questions and pushing you and holding you accountable, I think is essential. And I think most cases, these men who uh, did not uh, remain faithful, uh, probably we would discover that very few of them were in genuine relationships of accountability. Okay. Um, and I think also accountability to their wives, just a, a real openness about their use of time and where they are and what they're doing. Um, I think, obviously, um, uh, the proliferation uh, through social media and the Internet of pornography and uh, renewed communication. Uh, personally, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not condemning anybody who is. Yeah. But I hear... Uh, I don't know what the statistics were. I think I saw the other day that nearly one third of extramarital affairs were provoked by connecting with somebody on Facebook. I've seen that. Um, and uh, that, that scares me. That terrifies me. Um, I, I think the um, goodness, what else could I, I mean? There's so many factors that go into this. Um, it's, it's tragic. Um, oh, well, you know, we hear typically that um, I don't know what the percentages are. I'll bet it's upwards of 75 percent of pastors who fall morally. It's with a woman whom they were counseling, with whom they were meeting privately over an extended period of time. And um, I don't do a lot of counseling. I don't do a lot of counseling of women. But when I do, the door to my office remains open. Yeah, that's good. And um, and um, most many times, if need be, I bring in my administrative assistant to sit with me or my wife. So I think uh, pastors just need to avoid those kinds of one-on-one, -on -one, long-term, closed-door counseling relationships. Uh, that's a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. I think you're, the first thing that you said is really like the foundation of the whole thing. And at any point when you stop believing that God is the most satisfying factor in life, mm -hmm. all these other, there's, there are, there's just countless other things that can spring from that. And uh, I know one of the things that pastors talk a, a, a lot about and worry a lot about is this whole idea of burnout. And mm -hmm. so I wonder in, in 40 years, have you ever gone through what you felt was, was a, a, a period of burnout in your life? Um, I have to be real honest. No. Do, yeah. Okay. Uh, and I'm curious um, why, why, do, how is that? How is that? I mean, you've had like 15 different ministry positions and been a professor and done a lot of different things. How? Okay. Well, let me be clear. Okay. I'm not suggesting that I haven't at times been discouraged. Okay. Or even fallen into season, a, a short season. It's never been long with me of what we might call depression. Um, I think all of us know the dark night of the soul at one time or another. Um, but, I, I've never, I've never been, I've never once in my 40, let's say 41 years of ministry now considered doing anything else. I, I would just be miserable if I did. I, I think that the key is what Paul said in second Corinthians four uh, verses 16 through 18, when he said, for we do not lose heart. 
That's that's Pauline language for we don't burn out. Yep. We do not lose heart uh, because although the outer man is uh, wasting away, uh, the inner man is being renewed um, day by day as we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are unseen are eternal. So here's Paul saying, here's the key to not losing heart. It's you have to diligently keep your eyes and your heart and your mind focused and fixed upon the unseen world, uh, the promises of what God has for us in Christ, um, the glory of the age to come, uh, the reality of heaven and uh, life in the new earth has always been a very strong motivating factor for me. Um, and again, I would just say to to uh, uh, to anyone listening, especially pastors, that um, this idea that somehow we can hold ourselves firm and stay on the straight and narrow path merely by berating ourselves um, or threatening our own souls with, oh, don't you know what will happen if you should wander or if you should yield to temptation? That's not going to hold us true and faithful for very long. Uh, you have to be captivated by a superior pleasure than that which the world offers. And that to me is what we experience in knowing Christ. Yeah. <clears throat> so how do you, how do you just, just personally, I mean, you, you gotta be one of the only pastors I've ever heard that has not burnt out at some point. And I, I really like, I, I admire that. I think that's amazing. Um, and, and so can you just tell me a little bit about like, what, what is your own personal communion with God? Like, like, like just practically, um, you think it's as simple as communing with God regularly through quiet time, devotional life. What have been some really key sustaining things for you personally that have kept you rooted? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, this may come as a surprise to some and, and I'm not necessarily recommending it, but I have not, I'm not the sort who has, um, rigidly followed a, a regular daily quiet time in the morning as, as okay. most do. Now, let me say this. I would strongly urge all yeah. Christians, not just pastors, but everyone to do that. Yeah. I think it's wonderful. And I do it at various seasons in life. But the rhythm of my life has been more that uh, this is something that I do throughout the course of a day. I'm constantly, uh, whether I'm in the car or whether I'm um, uh, at home, or whether I'm attending an athletic event, or I'm hanging out with friends, or um, preparing messages, or whatever, I'm constantly trying to nourish my soul with the presence of Christ. Prayer is more of a, uh, it's like breathing. Um, one of the things that has been a, a continual sustaining factor to me is personal worship. Now, I love corporate worship. I I would rather be in a corporate worship service than do anything else on the face of the earth. Yeah. Uh, but just constantly being, um, um, turning my thoughts, my affections, my heart, my mind toward God in times of worship, whether it's um, when I'm pri alone in my office or whether I'm driving in a car or whatever. Um, so, but honestly, the thing that, that sustains me more than anything else is just the, uh, the way God com com comes to me and draws near to me through his word. Yeah. Just the instrumentality of God speaking and, uh, the truth, the power of truth. I mean, I, that's the one thing I've never understood when people have complained about the Bible is dry or boring. Now, I understand maybe some people don't know really how to read scripture. They don't know what questions to ask of the text. But to me, it has been a life-giving catalyst uh, that sustains me, not just in those, those uh, uh, 
momentary quiet times uh, for 30 minutes or 10 minutes before the day starts, but just constantly throughout the course of every day. Yeah, that's good. I appreciate that. I had someone ask me, uh, send me a question on Twitter <clears throat> that I thought was an important one because a lot of ministry leaders face, especially those that are not lead pastors. Um, and their question was, was a practical one. How, how long should you stay in a position that you feel called to, but you don't fit your like senior lead pastor's desire or long range plan? Um, and I've, I've been in that before where I felt called to a body, but I knew I wasn't necessarily a great fit in the person that I was working for. So do you have any thought as a senior pastor, someone in that position, any, any counsel that you'd give them? Well, um, I have served, I served for, I'm trying to think if I can add up the years of my, out of my 41, let's see, there were, um, See eight, and there were probably fifteen of those forty-one years that I was an associate. And in each of those instances, um, I had such a good working relationship, a personal friendship with the lead pastor. Um, I never had any conflict. I never had any question about whether or not I should leave. Uh, as a lead pastor, I have had a couple of situations in which um, it was very evident that. Um, someone needed to move on. Uh, the bottom line is we basically disagreed on everything. Okay, that'll do <laughs> I it. I mean everything. <laughs> it's not an exaggeration. Yeah. Uh, down to the just the smallest of details and how a church should be organized and, and operated and as well as theology and personality and vision and mission. And I think if, if, a, if a man is finding that he is – uh, fundamentally in conflict or disagreement with a lead pastor over issues of mission and value and some, not necessarily the fundamental doctrines of the faith, but some maybe the upper tier of secondary issues that are actually going to affect his ability to be honest and sincere and passionate about his work. That's when he needs to begin asking the question about whether or not that's a good fit and whether or not he needs to move on. Yeah. Um, I think the, the really the only answer to that is is complete vulnerability and honesty with your lead pastor. I would say to any associate, um, you need to spend time with him. You need to ask questions. Um, you need to know at what point does he think that you may be crossing a line that's undermining his authority or undermining his credibility with the people. And if you can't minister and preach and pastor and lead people uh, in such a way that you're building confidence in the lead pastor in the hearts of the people, then you've got a problem. And yeah. then you need to really consider um, that the time has come for you to leave. You know, and there, bottom line is there are also some specific doctrines and practices that simply can't coexist within the same church. Yeah. I mean, if you're, let's say, for example, uh, let's say that you're a, an associate pastor and you are Baptistic, you believe in pedo, or credo baptism, mm -hmm. and your lead pastor is pedo baptistic, believes in infant baptism. Um, well, it's a, you know, you can't be expected uh, to uh, administer an ordinance that is a violation of your conscience. Um, or, for example, if one is a complementarian and the other is an egalitarian. Well, either women do serve on a board of elders or they don't. And if you're right. a complementarian, it would be very difficult 
at least for me, to serve in a church in which I was asked to submit to someone that I don't believe is qualified to serve as an elder. Um, there may be other, um, there may be other, well, spiritual gifts is a classic example. Yeah, um, yeah. a person, if a lead pastor is a, uh, let's say, let's say the lead pastor is a cessationist and you're a continuationist, um, how can you exercise and encourage other people to move in the power of certain spiritual gifts at the same time the lead pastor believes that that's either of the flesh or of the devil or some psychological right. trick? So there are some things that are going to be in such conflict that it becomes evident you can't coexist in the same local body. That's a great answer. Final thing on the ministry longevity piece is just if you were going to commend one thing, and I, I think I have a little bit of a sense of what you'll say, but if you were going to commend one thing to pastors and ministry leaders who are really just starting out, they're in their first five years, uh, what do you think that would be? Hmm. <laughs> wow. That is a good question. Just in terms of preparation for, um, you know, I, this is probably not what you were expecting. I would say commit yourself to expository preaching. Hmm. Commit yourself to whatever disciplines are needed, whatever education is needed, whatever um, scheduling is needed to learn how to preach verse by verse and uh, devote yourself to it and don't deviate from it. Um, I, I, t that's been my approach ever since I started ministry. Yeah. Um, so th that would be preeminent, I think. But then also... Uh, I am a Christian hedonist, um, and which means that I believe that, uh, um, as John Piper says, that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And it is that which has ignited a fire in me. I wish it had been there from the first of my ministry, yeah. um, but it wasn't. And I would encourage uh, men everywhere to really immerse themselves in the principles um, that we find in scripture about joy and satisfaction in Christ and uh, to cultivate a devotional life and a personal life and a professional life that, that fuels that passion for Christ, that delight, that ever increasing joy and fascination with who God is. That's a great answer. So encouraged by that. Hey, it's me, Ryan, again. Sorry to interrupt, but I need your help. If we're going to make it as easy as possible for people to find these podcasts, we have to increase our visibility on iTunes. So do me a favor. If you're enjoying this episode, will you take 60 seconds, log on to iTunes, and leave me a short review? It's that simple. Every review makes a huge impact. Keep spreading the word, and thanks for your support. Now back to the conversation. Um, all right, I want to talk about this book, Kept for Jesus. Okay. Um, actually I was just this past Sunday, uh, we do text message Q and a at times in our services after I preach. And, uh, and I had someone ask me a question over text message about this very thing about being certain that they're saved or assurance. And I, I told them that I was talking with you this week and I told them to read your book. That was, that was the majority of my answer. So I really enjoyed it. And I just wanted to share with you the two things that I really loved about it. Um, and I think that it's very reflective of so much of what you've already said. The first one is just, I love that the book is text-centered and mm -hmm. uh, that it's not super flashy in the way that it's put together. Just every chapter, you're going to specific texts in the Word of God and making people face the text. Mm -hmm. And I love that. One of the things I say all the time in preaching is if it's in the text, you have to do something with it. You can't, you can't just ignore it. And so I loved being pushed to the text over and over. And then the second thing was that you did that, but you do it in a very charitable way. And oftentimes, you don't find those two things together. 
And uh, so for what that's worth, not that my opinion matters very much, but I was very encouraged by those two things. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask you was the subtitle of the book is what the new Testament really teaches about assurance of salvation and eternal security. So, uh, most believers know what it is at some point to have that question creep into their heart. Um, how, how can I be certain that I'm saved? So would you say that the very fact that someone at some point in their relationship with God, do you think it's a, that it's an encouraging thing that they would wrestle with that question at some point that that's actually a good sign? Yes, it is. You know, let me just give you an example. Um, I've had, I can't even begin to count the number of people over the years of ministry who have come convinced that they had committed some sin that had caused God to uh, reject them, whether they believe it was the unforgivable sin or uh, some other failure in their life or the fact that they're wrestling with some what I call at times a kind of a low-grade daily addiction to something that wouldn't necessarily get their name on the front page of the paper, but it's a it's a it's a besetting sin as we oftentimes refer to them, um, and th- they live in fear that somehow because of the continual cycle of 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 a, a season of success, a, a time of failure, uh, a sense of conviction, confession, repentance, a season of success, time of failure, it just goes on and yeah. on and on. And people say, well, why can't I get beyond this? Maybe I'm not even born again. And my immediate response to them is, look, if you were involved in this cycle that you just described and you were not bothered, you were content, you were not feeling this this war in your heart and in your spirit, then I'd be concerned about the state of your soul. But as, as you know, remember Paul says in Galatians five about how the spirit wages war against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. The fact that there's a war going on yeah. is a good sign because it means there's spirit present within you. Yeah. If you were only flesh, you wouldn't be fighting. Yeah. You wouldn't be uh, experiencing the kind of conviction that you are. You wouldn't be worried about what your heavenly father is thinking and about your relationship with him. So I, I tell people, and I, I hope this is a word of encouragement to them, is that um, when you struggle with the assurance of salvation, that's good. Struggle is good. Complacency is not. Yeah, that's now, good. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to come to a point where we can rest confidently in knowing that we are saved. But that's different from complacency where we are at peace with sin. If somebody is at peace with sin, if they are somehow rationalizing it or they are taking pride in it, then I have a real serious concern. But if somebody is uh, broken and they're struggling and they know what is right, they want to break free of the cycle, uh, I I tell them, look, that's good news. That means the Spirit of God is operative in your heart and your life. And the Father, as Hebrews 12 tells us, is disciplining and chastising us precisely because we are His children. Yeah. If you're if you're not feeling the disciplinary hand of the Lord, um, Hebrews 12 says that you're an illegitimate child. There's yeah. another word word we could use for that, but we won't because yeah. other people are going to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> I remember a couple years ago being really encouraged reading um, a bio on Jonathan Edwards and reading about both he and his wife's, they both went through seasons of severe doubt and questioning. And I was really encouraged by that because I just felt like if, if, if Edwards was not a Christian, it's hopeless for me. Yeah. And uh, and so to know that other, you know, every 
every anyone that we would look to as a great in the faith has gone through seasons like that. So um, I'm glad to know that's pretty much what I shared in text message Q and A. It wasn't quite as eloquent, but at least I wasn't a heretic. So I'm encouraged by your answer. Yeah. Um, well, your book sort of, I really like the simplicity of the way that it centers around what is sadly a pretty common scenario. You talk about Mm -hmm. this, uh, kid named Charlie, Charlie grows up in the church, uh, and goes away to college, essentially loses his faith, walks away from the Lord. And so really the book is centered around answering this question of what happened to Charlie. Mm-hmm. And you present the three common answers, the Arminian position, the antinomian one, and the reformed one. And, yes. uh, and I don't want to assume that everybody knows what all three of those were. I learned some things in reading that. So could you just, could we just start with, with the, uh, could you just summarize those? Like, so what would be the Arminian response to that question? What happened to Charlie? Sure. Um, it's interesting, by the way, just just for our listeners to be reminded of this, James Arminius himself never took a firm position on whether a born-again justified child of God could apostatize and ultimately uh, lose their salvation. But Arminianism typically says that it is possible for a born-again believer. We're not talking about somebody who's Um, who's deluded about their faith, but a genuinely born again, regenerated, justified by faith uh, believer in Jesus can, by um, an act of their will, turn from Christ, repudiate him, uh, expose him to open shame, and in doing so, apostatize, and that God, in effect, lets them go. Um, And so many Arminians would say in the case of Charlie, yeah, we believe he was saved back in uh, at youth camp when he was 12 years old, and we watched him uh, in the life of the church, and he was active and vibrant, and then he fell in with this group of militant atheists at college, and they turned him and put doubts in his mind, and he uh, veered off course into all form of sin and immorality, and now he, uh, he openly and unashamedly rejects Christ and even maybe the existence of God. The Arminian would say, he has lost or forfeited is sometimes the word that they use uh, his relationship with Christ and um, is in fact eternally condemned. Uh, the antinomian. Now, this is a word that I use that probably they would not like. Yeah, uh, they would certainly not apply it to themselves. Yeah, but there are some Christians who believe very, very strongly in eternal security. They believe that once you make a singular a confession of faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died for your sins and rose again from the dead, you are eternally secure from that moment on, irrespective of how you live your life. You can, now they would say you ought to follow Christ in holiness. You ought to become a disciple. You ought to submit to him as Lord. You should um, uh, be quick to confess sins and you should bear and manifest the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but you might not. Yeah, But that doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. And so um, these are individuals who would argue that because of a singular act of conscious faith in Christ that is in many respects more intellectual than anything else, it's believing certain truths about who Jesus is, Okay, you're born again. Hmm. And that, and you will always remain born again, and you will never suffer loss of salvation. However, 
because you do not bear the fruit of the Spirit, you do not yield to the promptings of the Spirit in life, you do not experience that progressive sanctification, you'll suffer loss of rewards in the age to come. You'll lose those blessings uh, and that uh, those degrees of happiness and authority that are going to be given by God to those who are faithful, but you're still in the kingdom. You get in the door, uh, but you do not experience the kind of uh, uh, heightened happiness and the rewards that you otherwise would have had if you had been faithful. Okay. How but, would you, for those that don't know, could you just define that term anti, antinomianism or an antinomian? Yeah. Well, it's com- com- combined of two words that means against the law. Okay. Um, now, that's why they would. That's why they would not use this of themselves. Does, have you I'm ever sure met I'm, anyone that has ever identified themselves as an antinomian? <laughs> I don't think I have. I don't think I have either. Yeah. Because they would say, "Oh no, no, we're for the law of God. We're for the commandments of Christ. We believe that you should obey them and pursue them. That you should um, seek to be conformed to the image of Jesus." But if you don't, that's no reflection on the authenticity of your salvation. Okay. And so in that sense, um, for example, I mean, I, I actually heard one of them in a public debate uh, when he was asked the question, will unbelievers who do not d- demonstrate the, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit enter into the kingdom of God? And the answer was yes, if they believed in Christ. Hmm. And so... Um, it, it diminishes the um, the role of God's commands and the the practical pursuit of holiness. So for example, I I preached on uh, Hebrews twelve this past week, uh, where in verse fourteen the author says, "Pursue that holiness without which no one will see the Lord." Yeah. I think he's saying that saving faith is a holiness pursuing faith, and that I asked the question of, of the congregation. Sam, are you saying to us that if we don't pursue practical holiness, we won't go to heaven? And my answer is yes, that's precisely what I'm saying. Now, the antinomian will say, oh, no, no, no. The seeing the Lord there is not a reference to salvation. It's not a reference to entrance into the kingdom of God. That's a reference to the joys of intimacy with him that you will forfeit for failing to have pursued holiness. Hmm. Uh, so that's how they will get around words, uh, language such as that. For example, uh, where Paul says that those who practice such things, you remember things like yep. um, uh, unrepentant homosexuality, idolatry, drunkenness, uh, adultery, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Their understanding is that to inherit the kingdom is different from entering in. You'll enter in. You just won't enjoy the blessings of the kingdom okay. because of the unrepentant sin in your life. So. Like I said, they won't like the fact that I use the word antinomian to describe them, but yeah. uh, I, I do think in many respects it's appropriate. Do you do you see with this kind of new wave of, of the gospel-centered movement, do you see kind of a strand of antinomianism, a new strand that is sort of running parallel with that? Do you think that that's just kind of always been there, or is there a new grow—like, is, is there anything picking up steam in that? Yes, there are certain individuals in the gospel-centered stream of Reformed theology that so emphasize the gospel, the finality of what Christ did in his life, death, and resurrection for us, that they tend to minimize the urgency 
of fighting sin in daily life, yeah. uh, the call to forsake ungodliness, the call to wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And their way of saying that you do that is, well, just go back to the gospel. Just right. go back and trust that Christ has waged that war for you. Uh, look back to the justification that you have through faith. Now, I understand that, and of course, there's a sense in which I agree with it. But out of that gospel flows um, a life that, that uh, you know, I, I just think of uh, Hebrews 12, 1, run the race Good. that is set before you, setting aside all weight, all entangling sin that clings so closely. That's an urgent appeal to do something. And I think that many, I say many, it's not many, some within the gospel-centered movement would say the way we run the race is, again, to run to Christ. Now, I understand that. Of course, we should run to Christ. Sure. But that doesn't mean that we don't engage and wage war with sin, that there are things that God calls us to do. Um, so, yeah, there is a stream within the Reformed movement, the gospel centrality emphasis that um, tends to somewhat minimize the urgency of the battle, the call to pursue holiness, uh, employing the means of grace to mortify sin, you know, Paul says in Romans 8, um, those who live according to the flesh will die. I That's believe right. he means that literally. Yeah. Um, and so we are called to uh, put to death the deeds of the flesh. We do it by the grace of God through the power of the spirit that is supplied to us because of what Christ has done. But um, merely telling somebody to look to Christ because he's run the race for you. He's obeyed in your behalf. He's died in your stead. Although that's all true, I think out of that flows a practical pursuit of godliness in life. Totally agree. Um, I could talk with you about that all day. I want to come back to the book, though, and give you a chance to argue for what you actually argue for in the book. So we've talked about the Arminian response, the antinomian response. So to that question of what happened to Charlie, you argue the Reformed or Calvinistic response. So could you explain uh, what your position on that would be? Sure. Um, I've known a lot of Charlies in my life, yeah. and uh, I know, I'm sure you have as well. I think there's one of two explanations for what has happened. One is that Charlie really was born again. Mm -hmm. uh, he truly came to faith, and he has, for whatever reasons, uh, f we use the word backslide. Yep. He has backslidden. He has wandered. He has deviated from the path in some serious ways. But if he was truly born of God and if the Spirit of God lives within him, I believe that God will deal with him. Um, he, he will discipline him. Um, he may uh, suffer physically. He may endure incredible chastisement from the hand of his heavenly father. But either he will be brought back to repentance and restored to his relational intimacy with Jesus, or in the case of some, and I think these are rare, but they do happen, God may take him home in the sense of God may terminate his physical life on this earth in order to bring him into the presence of Christ in heaven. I think that's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Okay. In Acts chapter 5, I think that's what happened in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, with those who were persistently abusing the Lord's table. Paul said, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you sleep. And all of that was so that they would not be judged with the world. In other words, God preserved and upheld them in their uh, justified state as children of God precisely by removing them from life 
lest they continue down a path that would be inconsistent with their salvation. So that's one option. The other option is, is that Charlie was never truly born again to begin with, mm-hmm. um, that he was deluded, that he experienced a measure of, we could say, quote unquote, faith, what I call fickle faith, mm-hmm. spurious faith. We see this in the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. Um, it says that Jesus, that people believed in him, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew the heart of man, uh, especially John 8. Uh, people are called disciples. It says that they believed in Jesus, and yet they are the very ones who accused him of being demonized and said that he was a son of Satan and eventually crucified him. Mm-hmm. So there are kinds of faith, kinds of belief in which we get caught up in the euphoria of some religious encounter, uh, or we're fascinated by uh, things that we see in God's word, or we're drawn to the community of the local church. We find a place of identity and purpose and value, but we're never truly born of God. And so in the case of many of these that we call Charlie, the fact is they were never genuinely regenerated by the spirit. You know, Hebrews 3:14 says, "We have come to share in Christ if we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end." In other words, endurance or perseverance is the evidence or the proof of the authenticity of our claim to have been born of God. So those are the the, the two of the options within uh, the reformed camp. Yeah. But in, one, but, one, in, but in but in but but in in no case would the reformed ever say that a genuinely um, justified by faith in Christ alone, born again believer ever find himself or herself eternally separated from Christ. Yeah, one of the um, people, like the biblical characters that I'm asked about whenever talking about this is always, it's always the Judas question. Like, so what about Judas? What happened to Judas? He's one of the 12. He's one of Jesus' boys for 12 years. He performs miracles. He's very much a part of the ministry. What do you, when, when people bring Judas up, when you're talking about this, what's your, which one of those two, like, what do you say to people? Well, my understanding is, is that Judas was never um, a man who truly trusted Jesus as Lord and Messiah. Um, Some of the things that Jesus said about him, you know, that he knew from the beginning who it was who was going to betray him. The fact that he said it would have been better if that man had never been born. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that Judas is a good example of the kind of people, unfortunately, that we have in the church today who are part of the community, who um, have actually, in in a sense, come under the umbrella of God's grace. They have perhaps been baptized. They experience the Lord's table. They are exposed to the word of God. They pray for people. They receive prayer. Um, But in the depths of their own hearts, they have never actually been renewed and regenerated by the spirit of God. So I would, um, I would say that Judas, in fact, was not a born-again man. He was not a true uh, disciple of Jesus in the way that the other 11 were. Uh, now, again, that, that's an, one of those tough texts. That's one of those hard cases um, that cause some people to embrace the idea that you can forfeit your salvation. You know, I, one of the things I mention in the book, and I say to people all the time is, if there weren't problem people and problem passages, we wouldn't be having this discussion. That's right. I wouldn't have needed to write the book. Yeah. I, I openly and freely confess that there are passages in the Bible that are hard to understand. 
And so I think what we have to do is we have to look at the totality of Scripture, and we have to ask what co- what collection of texts better accounts for and explains the others. Hmm. I think affirming the security of the believer and the perseverance of the saints better accounts for people like Judas than does a case like Judas somehow completely undermine the multiplicity of texts that affirm that uh, once we are truly saved, we are eternally secure in the Father's love. So what do you—clearly there's a variety of opinion and conviction on this topic. Personally, I find it very comforting— um, and I see it in the text, most importantly. But why do you think that so many people reject the uh, perseverance of the saints or this eternal security thing? Because it seems like it should be such a comforting thing. So why would people reject it? I think for several reasons. I think for number number one, we've just been talking about it, the Charlies in their life or the yeah. Charlenes. And sometimes it's somebody they know very well. It might be a family member. It might be a a son or a daughter. It might be um, their own. It might be somebody that uh, they grew up with and they were absolutely persuaded this person had to have been born again. There's just simply no way I can convince myself they weren't. And then they watch this individual spin off Mm -hmm. and completely repudiate Christ. And it's as if they have no other explanation for it. Um, I think oftentimes um, these texts, certain problem passages, weigh heavily. Things like uh, Hebrews 6, which is perhaps the most famous passage that people typically refer to first. Uh, I think oftentimes they're raised in certain religious traditions. I have a number of people who attend uh, Bridgeway here in Oklahoma City who are raised in the Church of Christ and they attend one of the uh, Church of Christ universities here in town. And that's a tradition in which uh, it is uh, is very Arminian. They've been taught all their lives that you can apostatize and lose your salvation. Um, I think one of the primary factors is they they mistakenly think that if you tell someone that a truly born again believer will always be secure in their salvation, that that will give them an excuse to go sin. Mm. It's like you're you talk about being antinomian. Uh, doesn't that open the door to all sorts of disobedience and immorality because they can say, hey, I'm always saved. I'm always secure. Once saved, always saved. I can um, I can live any way that I please and know that I'll end up in eternity with Christ. And so it's the fear that people will use the doctrine of our security to justify their immorality that I think causes uh, a number of people to really resist this this teaching and this truth. Yeah. All right, I've got two more questions. I want to respect your time. The first one, um, I I was hoping that you could give me a little bit of counsel as a preacher. Um, I feel a tension pretty consistently between wanting to aid in assurance where necessary, but mm-hmm. also have a great fear of giving false assurance where there should be none. And sure. you, you state in the first chapter of the book, and I've just loved this, that um, that we may not have the right to tell someone they're not saved, but that we should never give assurance to someone in unrepentant sin. So I, you have to feel this tension as a preacher. Yes. Uh, you have both in front of you every single week. How do you think about this and preach in light of it? Yeah, I mean, you articulated it perfectly. Um, if, if an individual um, that I thought and had some measure of confidence was truly a child of God um, lives in unrepentant immorality, let's say that, a, that there's a man in the church who might even have been in a position of leadership 
who has pursued an adulterous relationship outside of marriage, and he's been confronted. He knows what he's doing. He refuses to repent. He somehow rationalizes it. My wife doesn't love me. Uh, you know, I deserve the happiness that this woman is bringing me, whatever it may be. Um, I would say I would be very reluctant to say to that individual, well, you know, obviously I, I wish you weren't living this way, but the good news is uh, you're saved and secure in the, in the arms of your heavenly father. Mm-hmm. I would never give that kind of individual the assurance of salvation. Doesn't mean that he's not saved. We hope and pray that he is. And if he is, that God will, in fact, bring severe discipline upon him and restore him to, to, his, to his wife and to a, a life of sexual purity. But I'm not going to give assurance to, a, to an individual, man or woman, who's living in unrepentant sin, who is, who is in effect saying, um, uh, I am going to pursue this lifestyle, whatever it may be, that is clearly contrary to the word of God. And I feel no conviction and I feel no prompting uh, to, to turn from my chosen path. I'm not going to tell that person, uh, well, we disagree on your chosen lifestyle, but hey, at least we're going to end up in heaven together for eternity. Now, again, I may not have the right to say to them, you're definitely lost. Right. Uh, because they may continue to claim that they're saved. They may say, look, um, this is my chosen lifestyle, but I still know Jesus. I still love Jesus. He loves me. That may be true, but I'm certainly not going to give them the assurance that it is. Uh, I think that's dangerous to, yeah. to assure people who are living in blatant, unrepentant sin that um, all is well with their soul. That's dangerous, and, and we simply cannot do that. Yeah. Um, so I, I face situations like that all the time um, in, in the life of the church. Now, again, as we, we spoke earlier, there may be somebody who, is, uh, who claims to be a Christian who is living uh, in, in a way that they shouldn't, but they're broken by it, and they're yeah. devastated, and they're fighting, and they're struggling, and they want help. I would be far more inclined to assure that individual of their relationship with Christ than I would uh, the individual we just described before. Yeah, and so that's a perfect segue, because the last thing that I wanted to ask you to do is I I wanted to ask you to talk to someone who might be, who is not the complacent, uh, you know, not feeling a sense of conviction about their sin, but that the opposite, they're struggling right now to find hope and assurance, and they're twisted up inside, they're worried, they're concerned that they uh, about their salvation, how would you counsel them, and how can we pursue this assurance practically? Well, one of the things I would want to say is you're not saved by believing that you're saved. That's good. Um, if you're in a, we all go through seasons in life in which uh, circumstances and relationships of a variety of sorts cause our emotions to crater. You want to call it depression. You want to call it despair. You want to call it um, uh, disillusionment. Maybe uh, prayers that you've been praying for years have gone unanswered, and it's brought real devastation into your life and into your family. People go through this all the time. And And I want to assure people, look, the fact that you may not feel the nearness of God does not mean that he's not near. The fact that you may not be able to sense the affection and the love of God does not mean that he's not thrilled and delighted with you. And that he, as Zephaniah 317 says, he's still singing over you. 
So we need to be careful that people do not base their assurance upon the state of their emotions or the size of their bank account or the number uh, and faithfulness of their friends. Uh, because when these things begin to, um, uh, to go south, so to speak, we tend to conclude, I guess God's abandoned me. I guess God doesn't love me. Maybe I never knew him at all. And so what I'm saying is the, the foundational rock, the, the, the sure and solid basis for assurance is John 3.16. Mm-hmm. Coming back just to the basics of the gospel, do you believe that God sent his son and that he died for you so that believing in him, you should never perish but have everlasting life? Do you believe that? Is that the conviction of your heart? I'm not asking you how to reconcile that with the circumstances of your life. Right. Not asking you to somehow make sense of that truth in light of the depression and the frustration that you're experiencing. Do you believe in your heart? Is your confidence, is your hope in the finished finality and the sufficiency of the work of Christ on the cross for sinners like you? And if you can say yes to that, I want to uh, encourage you in your faith and encourage you to continue to press into the heart of God and to pray fervently that God would somehow, in the midst of adverse circumstances, bring you a renewed joy and confidence. And I believe he will. So, again, in the final analysis, I want to bring people back to the rock-solid foundation, the objective truth that God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you recognize yourself in that? And is your hope for heaven, not the state of your soul, not the emotional euphoria that you either experience or uh, can't remember what it was like, but is your hope grounded in the cross work of Jesus Christ? That's great. My single favorite line from the book is uh, when you wrote, the only reason I affirm the perseverance of the saints is that I believe in their preservation by the Savior. And I thought that was a really just beautifully perfect way to summarize it. It's a uh, encouraging and convicting hope-filled book. Thanks so much for writing it. And thank you so much for your time today. Uh, It's been a pleasure being with you. One of the things I tell my church all the time is that if it's in the text, you have to do something with it. And I love that Sam is that kind of man and that kind of pastor. He strives to live his life under the authority of God's word, and I want to be like that. You can't go wrong with any of Sam's books, but if you've never read anything by him, Kept for Jesus is a really great place to start. That's it for this episode, but don't forget you can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at at Ryan Hughley and also on my blog at ryanhughley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. We'll be back next week with episode number 27 in my conversation with Jeff Vanderstelt. We're talking about his transition to Doxa Church, which was Mars Hill Bellevue, and his new book, Saturate, Being Disciples of Jesus in the Everyday Stuff of Life. Until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you, and thanks for listening.